We're starting our series on the book of Isaiah, and our reading tonight, as you've heard, comes from Isaiah chapter 6. It seems like a strange place to start in chapter 6 when there's been five chapters before, but there's a reason for that, and that, that's because Isaiah spends the first five chapters of his book explaining the situation, what's going on in Israel and uh, Judah. And then he comes to the point, having described what it's all like, he then uh, tells of uh, his uh, calling and his commissioning and really of his conversion. So Isaiah has this vision and in it he sees God. Whether it's a vision or whether it's he, whether he literally sees God, it's not it's not clear. But um, what what has happened up till now, as I said, is Isaiah has laid out the scene into which God incredibly appears and reveals Himself to Isaiah. And some of the things that has been in the first five chapters is Isaiah tells us that the people have forsaken the Lord; they've rebelled against Him. Uh, tells us that in chapter 1 that the Lord is, is sick of their religion. He's sick of their activities, their meaningless offerings, their self-centered worship and prayers. Worship which is not really about God at all. They're not interested in Him. They're just doing it kind of for their own means. We're also told in chapter 2 they worship false gods. They uh, practice divination they, uh, they, they're seeking wisdom, that is. That's what divination is. Seeking wisdom from somewhere else that's not God. Um, we're also told that the people that are rich, they're actually doing well as a nation. They're full of, they've got a land full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. They've got horses and chariots, but also they've got idols. Now the Lord offers them, in chapter 1, a chance to change, a chance to repent. And he says, if you stop resisting and stop rebelling, I'll forgive your sins. And he promises that he'll show himself to them. But he says, I will bring judgment. Now that judgment is not just simply about punishment. Often we think of biblical judgment as God's going to punish his people. The reason he brings his judgment is about showing who he is. Showing his character, showing his name, showing particularly his holiness. Holiness is really one of the central themes of the whole book of Isaiah. He loves to speak of God's holiness, and as we see uh, his commissioning in chapter 6, we'll see why that is. This judgment that God says he's going to bring means that there, he says there's going to be a declining prosperity, they're going to lose some of their riches. In fact, they're going to lose some of the riches to the point where they don't even have the basic necessities. He says that the leadership of the country is going to fail and then there's going to be an exile. In other words, the people will be taken away from their nation and ruled over by another nation. So, into this position where the nation of Israel is really turned from God, they might not see it, they're doing really well, but they've turned from God the Lord appears to Isaiah and starts off by saying this happened in the year that King Uzziah died. Now Uzziah reigned over Israel for 52 years. That's a long reign. 
Um, they were very prosperous. They were, they were doing well. He wasn't necessarily the greatest of kings. He actually, uh, as he got more and more famous, at one point in his pride, he actually went into the temple and he did something that the priests were supposed to do. And so God actually struck him down immediately with uh, a leprosy. And, um, and he no longer, he had to spend the rest of his life out of the palace and he could never go to the temple again. But he had reigned for 52 years. Things were going well, but there was other nations, particularly the nation of Babylon, was, was getting strong and they were looking threatening. And, uh, and kind of so partly what happens, if someone's been leading a country for a long time and there's been a stability in government, what can happen is that the people... Uh, they can get very afraid. What's going to happen? There's sort of when you lose the stability of a stable government. What's next? If um, you know, if we've ever in Australia and we've had times where we've had prime ministers and leaders who have reigned for a long time, and then at the end of that reign, you might think, well, what's going to happen now? What's going to happen next? What's going to happen when Queen Elizabeth dies? What's the next bloke going to be like? Um, we ask those questions. So there's this sort of this uncertainty over the nation. And then God appears to Isaiah. I don't, it doesn't say anything about his background or whether he was expecting uh, something to happen, but he appears to Isaiah, and Isaiah describes this, this uh, vision of what he sees. He doesn't describe God at all. I guess God is beyond description. He, he describes his his robes or the train of his robes. He describes the angels that he saw and the temple as it was shaking. And uh, But he, he doesn't describe the Lord. And uh, we hear that these angels or these seraphs were flying and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. It's this awesome vision of God's holiness. This holiness three times. Holy, holy, holy. It's like something beyond any holiness that we could know, beyond our minds. And uh, God is amazing. And, and probably if you were there, as Isaiah was, you would be as he was. A bit frightened, actually, of God's holiness. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But holiness is a funny word because it's a word that if we're going to describe it about God, we almost find it very, well, we find it very difficult to describe without describing what it's not. So what's holiness? Well, it's where there's no darkness or where there's no sin, where there's no... Immorality, where there's nothing against God, we kind of define holiness often by what it isn't. But um, what he sees is God's holiness, his absolute purity, his complete um, glory, his perfect character right before him. God in all his loveliness. We know that when Moses uh, at one point said, Lord, show me your glory, uh, what he, he saw, well, he just saw the back of God, really. 
And he heard the Lord proclaiming his name and he says, uh, the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord or Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love for thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So God showed the, his incredible holiness by showing his nature at that point. Not just what he looks like, glory, not just glory as in a shining light, but the glory of an incredible holy character. So holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, immediately that that happens, Isaiah is confronted by something which is not so pretty. He sees and he understands his own heart. When he's faced with incredible holiness, all of his unholiness is exposed. It's all shown. He sees the incredible glory of God and then he look, He can't help but see what a mess is inside me. And he says, Woe to me, or judgment be upon me, in a sense. I am ruined. And the word, the Hebrew word there, which is sort of something like Dharma. I am ruined. I am silenced in the faith of the threat of death. That's what it means. I am in trouble, deep trouble. If this is what God's like, I'm in trouble. We're told actually in uh, Proverbs, the fear of the Lord's the beginning of wisdom. In other words, a healthy understanding of the holiness of God will make us wise. Yes, he is Father, but he is also holy. Yes, he is full of love and grace, but he is also the God of judgment. He is also the God who is not to be trifled with. And it's, it's something we, we have to, to hold in mind all the time. So, what I'm saying is this. The holy God that Isaiah looked upon there, the holy God that he felt ruined in front of, is the same God that we come to when we pray. The same God that we see who is sovereign and Lord over all the earth, and even the same God who we see in Jesus Christ. Now, it's the same thing happened actually to Peter, didn't it? Remember when um, Peter first met Jesus and Jesus was coming along and he put the boat there uh, and pushed the boat out and Jesus taught him the boat and then after he finished teaching, he said, throw down your nets and they caught lots of fish and Peter fell down before him and, and he said, um, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. You've got to get away from me. It's too much to have you near me in your holiness. I can't stand it. Now, Jesus never actually said, uh, Peter, you're a sinful man. He was confronted with the Lord's holiness, and in light of that holiness, he knew who he was. He knew his own sinfulness. I remember our, our friend Hank saying at one point, um, you don't have to convince people of sin 
when you show them the holiness of God, they'll know their sin. So, anyone who's never really had a revelation of the holiness of God, and therefore their own sinfulness, will actually never really be truly converted. They might have an understanding of God, they might love the church, they might want God to be kind of their helper, someone to prop them up in life and, and help them to remain healthy, wealthy and wise. But they won't actually want Jesus as a saviour. They won't say, I'm nothing without you. I'm finished without you. And that's why the conviction of sin that the Holy Spirit brings is a most wonderful thing. Because when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, we know our place before God. We know our place before the Holy God. We know we need a saviour. And when we know we need a saviour, we know that we can't do without him. We absolutely need him. And that we're ruined and deserving of punishment. And then we know the depths of what Jesus did in his sacrifice on the cross. We know the great pain that he suffered as he bore our sin. And God's holy anger. We understand that. The holy anger that, that God, the Holy Father, poured out on Jesus. On the cross. So what I'm saying this is, when we know God's holiness, then we know the depths of our sin and need for a saviour, and then we'll actually put our trust in Jesus. We'll say, I need you. And when we do that, we're actually set free, truly free from sin and guilt to live in all of the freedom that God intended for us. In other words, without a glimpse of God's holiness, we will never fear him, and therefore, we will never actually be set free from sin and guilt and death. So he says, Woe to me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So when he's confronted with the Lord's holiness, he sees his own sin, yeah, but he also sees the sin of the nation of Israel. He sees it all. It says all the people have unclean lips. They're all unclean. Because you see, what's happened is God's holiness has caused the scales to fall off of Isaiah's eyes. And now he can see everything clearly. Not just in himself, but the whole world. He sees the place. This prosperous nation's been doing great for 52 years. We are doing really well. And all of a sudden he knows... We're a long way from God. A minute ago, he couldn't see it. And now, he sees it clearly. Because you see, a revelation of who God is changes everything for us. He realises, I've got unclean lips. I'm a sinner. Now, the unclean lips, maybe he's thinking about the words that he said. You know, if he's like any man, he's probably said a whole lot of words. And, and in light of the holiness of God, all those words are kind of like, they're just words. They might be full of the world's wisdom, but really they're unclean. In other words, we're clueless without the revelation of God. So this chapter, if you look in your Bible, it'll probably have a heading that says something like Isaiah's commission. But I want to say this firstly, it's far more than a commission. I think this is Isaiah's conversion. And then his conviction, then his commission. The first part of his conversion is the conviction of sin, and that's where we're up to now. And then 
comes something. When we're, when we're laid bare before God, when we're laid bare before His holiness, comes the thing that only God can do. And that is the forgiveness of sins and atonement. Because this happens. He said, I'm, I'm, a ruin, I'm ruined. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Your guilt's taken away and your sin is atoned for. Now, I always thought that the live coal was something like touching his lips was kind of like a cleansing, but it turns out in the Old Testament, fire is not seen as that. Fire is actually seen as a symbol of God's holiness and a symbol of his anger against sin. In other words, you are you need to have your sin burnt out of you by the holiness of God. God is actually, as, as he always has been, angry with sin. But he says your sin's atoned for, it's been punished for, and we know that the only way that could happen for Isaiah or for any one of us is through what Jesus did on the cross. Now Isaiah actually goes on later on in chapter 53, but in other places too, to really speak of what Jesus was going to do on the cross, which would ultimately bring about his atonement and everybody who lived before Jesus, just as everybody who lived after, that is, those who trust in him. So what he's saying is, now the fire of God's judgment has come, it's touched your lips, and your sins are gone. And therefore, your lips are clean. In other words, you can now speak. And when you speak, your words are holy. You can speak God's words to whoever I send you to. And if your guilt is gone, then you no longer have any guilt. That's pretty natural, isn't it? If your guilt is gone, you don't have any guilt. In other words, you can approach God in a relationship, you can know there's nothing between you, and you can boldly speak to the people. And it really doesn't matter how the people take these messages, because you are right with God. In fact, we're going to talk about it in a minute, but they're not going to take these messages well. They're not going to even accept them. But if you've seen the Holy God face to face, well, what people think of your message is beside the point because serving Him is the ultimate thing. There is no fear. Then I heard the voice saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? So God says, who's, who's going to go and speak my message? Well, he's had his sins removed. And in a, a moment ago, he was, I deserve judgment. I deserve death. And now he's saying, I'll go. I'll serve you. I'll be the one. I'll speak your word. In fact, he's excited about it. He's full of the spirit. He's full of life. But then God gives him this warning. It's a horrible thing to tell someone who's going to speak God's word, but it's just the truth. He says, um, Go and tell the people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. 
make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. In other words, you're going to go and you're going to speak to the people my word and they will not receive your message. They'll refuse it. They'll refuse to receive it. They won't, they won't listen. And by the way, that is my intention. Now Jesus quotes this exact passage uh, in, in each of the Gospels at various times, uh, but particularly when he's talking about parables. The disciples say, why are you talking in parables? And we, we sometimes think a parable is a nice story that's understandable, like a sermon illustration or something like that. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm talking in parables so that people don't understand, so that people don't get it. Well, it's not quite and only that. It's all, it, he says, I'm telling them so that those who have ears to hear will hear. That's how he finished his parables. In other words, those who won't understand will not understand and they will refuse to understand. But those who have the ears of the Spirit will receive the message. They will hear. And that's what God's saying to Isaiah. The people you're speaking to are not going to hear at all. That's an encouraging thing when you're about to get sent out to speak God's word, isn't it? Go and speak exactly what I tell you. By the way, they're not going to listen and they're not going to be saved. But anyway, um, it's actually a, a really important thing uh, for us to know, though, especially if we're people who want to evangelise or preach or teach or just talk to others. You know, the word of the gospel brings a natural division. Some people will hear and some people won't hear. Those who have ears to hear will hear, and those whose hearts are callous, as Isaiah said, or whose hearts are hardened, they won't hear. Now Isaiah is a bit concerned about that, as you would be, and he asks a question. For how long, O Lord, will this be, basically? In other words, like, are you talking six months, and then they're going to understand, or maybe three years, or... And, uh, and... And the Lord says, um, well, until the cities are without inhabitant and until the homes, until there's a time where there's going to be a great judgment, actually. Uh, there's going to be a, a terrible time. Um, but, yep, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, that's the exile, and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remain in the land, it will again be laid waste. But then he, he speaks of trees. As the terebinth and the oak leave stumps when they're cut down, if you ever cut down a tree that reshoots, he's talking about that. There's going to be left in Israel a stump. And from that stump is going to come a shoot and it's going to, going to grow into a mighty tree. And, he, and this, he says, leave, they leave stumps when they're cut down so the holy seed will be the stump of the land. There's going to be a whole lot of judgment. Everything's going to be raised to the ground, but there's going to be this stump there. And from it is going to come the holy seed, and that holy seed is Jesus, as we know. He and him, Jesus, the Saviour, the Son of God, came from the nation of Israel, as God had always promised. God, although there was going to be judgment, he's not forgetting his people. And he is going to bring the salvation he's promised. It's always been in his plan. He's not changing his plans.
And uh, later on, as we go through Isaiah, we'll find that uh, Isaiah has a lot to say about this holy seed. So I just want to finish. Just I actually just want to recap on what I've said. Simply to say this. Point one, God is the same holy God as Isaiah was confronted with. Point two, God is still the God of judgment and actually he still uses judgment in this world to bring about his purposes. Point three, we need the same conversion that Isaiah had. Point four, God still uses us, people, his people, to bring his message to the world. Some won't hear and some will hear. Point five, God's plan is and always has been to bring his salvation through Jesus, who is his holy seed, his son. And I just add this, which is jumping ahead in Isaiah, but towards the end of Isaiah, Isaiah starts to speak about God's plan to bring a new heaven or a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. And we, knew, we know that this all comes through what Jesus has done. Because he himself, in a sense, endured the holy coal of God's wrath on the cross. It came and it touched him and it burnt him and it actually destroyed him and it killed him because he bore the sin that we deserved. But by his resurrection and his new life, he has done something which is going to renew everything in God's plan and in God's time. And he is going to make everything right again for his people. I pray that you'll have ears of the Spirit to hear what he's got to say to you. And that through the through God's holiness and a vision of that, that you'll be brought to this wonderful humility so that we can be people who cry out, you alone can rescue, you alone can save us. We've got no hope except for in you. I'm going to pray. Father, we, we just want to uh, say again what is true. You are holy. You are glorious beyond anything we can imagine. And Father, in light of that holiness, we see ourselves and we know that we're finished, we're done without Jesus. And so we thank you for your provision of salvation. We thank you for your hope that you brought through the atonement that he made on the cross in our place. And Father, I pray that you would give us a new vision of who you are, that we might live all of our lives in thankfulness, gratitude, you and seeking to cry out as Isaiah did. I'm here, send me. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.